Hi, my name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of 6-8 Church in Vancouver, Washington. The following is a message from our Sunday morning gathering that we hope encourages and inspires you in your journey to be more like Christ. For more information, visit 6-8-Church.com. That's the number 6 and the number 8, church.com. Um, I, am, I am struck by, uh, by the contrast that we're currently experiencing in our society there is we're living in perhaps the most abundant time uh, that has ever been as far as as far as we know where there's at least in our country and uh, the western hemisphere there's an abundance of resources and and uh, lots of lots of opportunities and money and all of those kinds of things and yet at the same time this very week I've had a lot of experience with uh, with parts of our town, parts of our community, uh, where where the need is great, there there is a, a a huge, it seems like, growing chasm between those who are living in abundance and those who are struggling to make ends meet. And uh, living in an abundant society is great if you have abundance, uh, if you're one of the ones that has the resources to be able to to get those things. But it's um, maybe even more frustrating and challenging to not be able to get those things and yet see them uh, kind of paraded in front of you on a regular basis. And uh, so we're actually going to be talking about that a little bit this morning, the idea of, of abundance and living in a season and a world of abundance. To get there, we need to go through my crazy route. Um, how many of you have used one of those old hand pumps? Got a picture for you, but uh, how many have used one of these hand pumps at some point in your life? Okay, so what do you have to do with the pump before you use it if it's been sitting for a while? Prime it. What does that mean to prime it? Fill it with water from the top, right? Yeah, yeah, you have to fill it with water and then you have to let it sit there for a while because if you don't, what could you do? Are you pump and pump and pump and not get it? There's a little, there's a gasket. Uh, back in the old times, it would have been a leather gasket, right? And if you wear out that leather gasket, then you're not going to get any water because <laughs> there's no seal on it. Um, the following letter was found in a baking powder can wired to the handle of an old pump like this uh, that offered the only hope of drinking water on a very long and seldom used trail across Nevada's Amargosa Desert. I don't know if I said that right. We don't think about, you know, long trails. We just this last summer, you know, drove, did the south route. We went down to Southern California and drove across the desert, you know, through Arizona and, and uh, New Mexico and in Texas. And uh, we drove a lot uh, through dry lands, but I wasn't really worried most of the time that we were going to run out of water. But there was a time when you would be going through the desert like that and, uh, and you might need some water. This letter reads this. This pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer into it and it ought to last five years. But the washer dries out and the pump has got to be primed. 
Under the white rock I buried a bottle of water, out of the sun and cork end up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. Pour about one-fourth and let her soak to wet the leather. Then pour in the rest medium fast and pump like crazy. You'll get water. The well has never run dry. Have faith. When you get watered up, fill the bottle and put it back like you found it for the next feller. Feller, F-E-L-L-E-R. Signed, Desert Pete. P.S. Don't go drinking the water first. Prime the pump with it and you'll get all you can hold. It's from a book called The Edge of Adventure. This morning we're talking about faith. And uh, faith a lot of times is exactly like that. Uh, we, we know that there is a source, a, an abundant source, uh, that, that can give all kinds of of supply and meet all kinds of needs and and God's well never runs dry and yet a lot of times instead of using what God has given us to pour into the well to pour into to take a step of faith much like Alex was talking about to do that little act of of faith in advance we we use the resources for ourselves as we've gotten through Hebrews, um, we, are, we are now in Hebrews chapter 11, what is often called the Hall of Faith. And in the Hall of Faith, we see a lot of examples of faith that are, that are listed. But as we've kind of come now, we're, we're most of the way through the book. We've only got two chapters left after this, after this sermon, chapter 12 and 13 in the next few weeks. And uh, so we've got, I think, a pretty good picture of, of the author's themes and the author's way of thinking. And we've talked a lot about hope and having our hope anchored to Jesus Christ and the finished work of Jesus Christ and the work that he did going into the Holy of Holies and offering the more perfect sacrifice and all of those things, how our hope is supposed to be anchored to that, not to anything else that's shifting. So. When we talk about hope this morning, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the wishful thinking kind of hope like we often use the word, how we would define the word in our common language. But this is a hope that is secured by the finished work of Christ who died and rose from the dead, ascended and now sits at the right hand of the Father in the perfect or the more perfect, more perfect sanctuary in heaven. So when you hear that word hope, think of that definition. Now, this is, there are a lot of acronyms for faith to help us understand what faith is, and this is one I tweaked to get it, I think, to really line up with Hebrews and, uh, and give us a good acronym to remember what faith is according to Hebrews. So, faith in Hebrews is to be fully assured in the hope. Faith is to be fully assured in the hope. Now, if you're just thinking about hope as wishful thinking, you might think, oh, well, that's not really much of a definition because you're basically saying that to be fully, faith is to be fully assured in faith. It's like hoping in, in hope. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you know what hope is, according to Hebrews, it becomes clear that our assurance is in the hope. And it's to live fully assured in the hope. Another way of putting it, you might say it this way, it's 
confidently living according to God's future promises in the present. Confidently living in the present according to God's future promises. Confidently living according to God's future promises in the present. But this word assurance, I think, is really important for us to understand because it's how the author begins chapter 11. Now, faith is... Does anyone know what 11.1 says? Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance or evidence or the assurance of things not seen. Hypostasis is the word for assurance. Hypostasis, H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. And it's typically defined evidence or assurance, except for this peculiar beginning in uh, the first few lines of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1.3 says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Nature there is hypostasis and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So right there, the same word is used for nature as is used in chapter 3, verse 14, for assurance. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, hypostasis. And then here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, says, Now faith is the assurance, the hypostasis of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance. But if you take into account this idea of nature and Jesus, who the author is talking about in verse 3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. How does that really shape and build our idea of faith? Because the word hypostasis means that which has foundation, is firm. We talked this week in the devotionals and in the podcast how our faith as Christians is not what a lot of people accuse us of having blind faith. It is not blind faith. It is faith that is built on the evidence of the provable work of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ can be proven. It is a historical fact. You can, you, you can decide, you can say that you don't believe, you don't believe you know, what, the, what it means, but you can't believe that it didn't happen. What the resurrection means may change to you, but you cannot argue that it didn't happen. And so our faith is not blind faith. Our faith is built on the foundation of Jesus and his resurrection. It's firm. The word hypostasis means that which has actual existence, a substance, a real being. The substantial quality, nature of a person or a thing, the steadfastness of mind, firmness, courage, resolution, confidence, firm trust, assurance. 
So faith is the assurance, confidence, firm trust, resolution, steadfastness, substantial quality, substance, actual existence of things hoped for. Faith is what Jesus was to God the Father, the exact representation of his being. Faith is the same assurance of what we hope for. So we can look at Jesus and know what God looks like, and by looking at the nature of Christ, we know the nature of the Father. We've spent a lot of time over the years studying that concept. We can then, in the same way, look at what we're hoping for with the same assurance of what we saw in Jesus Christ representing the Father. So faith is living fully assured in the hope. So we are fully assured in the hope that we have of what is coming of that great and glorious day that we've talked about. We can live in full assurance of that because our faith is built on the firm foundation of Jesus. And then we get into Hebrews chapter 11. And as you go through Hebrews chapter 11, the word faith is mentioned like 30 times in Hebrews chapter 11. I think it's safe to say that the theme of Hebrews 11 is faith. <laughs> a little bit of a courtesy laugh would be just fine at a moment like that. <clears throat> Thank you. I appreciate that. <clears throat> faith is the theme of Hebrews chapter 11. All of these people, as we go through Hebrews chapter 11, and we spend some time in the podcast looking at some of the examples, and we, because of how, how we understand how the world works, we are actually a part of that because at the very beginning, we are included in the, by, by looking at the way the world was created, we have an understanding that it was God who made it in Hebrews 11.3. But a lot of times I think we look at the works or we look at the tremendous things and the stories themselves and we connect those tremendous acts with the faith of the people in this chapter. But it wasn't the, wasn't the connection to the tremendous things that happened that is the example of faith. That is not the point the author is making in this chapter. The, the author is not saying, look, when you have faith like, like Moses did, then, then you can part the Red Sea. But those, aren't the, those aren't the points that the author is making. He's talking about all of these people who did stuff in advance of the fulfillment of the promise. These are people who saw the promise from a distance, who saw it way out in front of them, and yet in their present situation, they acted in faith according to the promise that had yet to come. They were acting, they were, they were working out in the present what was still to happen in the future. For three of them, there are some, some really peculiar examples in here, like Sarah and Rahab the prostitute and Enoch. These three, something happened to them in response to their faith. Enoch was taken up into heaven in response to his faith. Sarah, in response to her faith, was able to get pregnant and have a child. And Rahab, in response to her act of bringing in the spies and protecting the spies, was then protected 
because she demonstrated faith. What I believe, after studying it, the author is saying is that it was the actions of the people that demonstrated their faith. Because as you go through the, through the chapter, you will see that by faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, Moses did. By faith, Abraham did. By faith, these ancients of the faith were commended because of what they did, not just because they claimed belief in the promise. So they had faith in the promises of God, even though these promises wouldn't come to pass for over a thousand years. They're not commended for their belief in the things. They're commended for their faith in the promises of God. Now keep in mind here what the author intended when he was writing to this audience. The author was writing to an audience that was starting to face adversity for their faith. They were starting to come under oppression, and eventually they would come under persecution for their faith. And he's writing to those who were starting to turn away and turn back to Judaism. And remember, they were having to curse Jesus Christ to go back to the old way. And he's, he's saying, hey, don't go back to that because that's all dried up. There's nothing to go back to. And he's, he's wanting the people to persevere in the face of adversity. You might say that he's saying, when your surroundings are overwhelming, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. When what is going on around you starts to overwhelm you and overtake you and overpower you, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, which will be a big theme in chapter 12, and we'll talk about that more next week. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. But there are some other interesting things we can draw out of this chapter that I think start to paint a picture of what faith in our era is supposed to look like. Because what they looked forward to, we look back on. What, what the ancients were, were looking forward to was Jesus Christ, the coming of the Messiah, who would come and offer a sacrifice once and for all time for the sins of all humanity. That was way off in their future, but for us, it's way off in our past. They were looking forward to something. We are looking back on it. And the author says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They were still living by faith in what was going to come, what was going to happen when they died. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Sure, they saw some incredible, ridiculously crazy things happened in their life, especially Moses and the Israelites. There were some ridiculous things that God did, and they saw God move in mighty, miraculous ways. And yet Moses died sitting on that mountain, looking over into the promised land and not able to enter into it. And even the promised land itself was yet a type and shadow, a metaphor of something that was still to come. And we see this here towards the end of chapter 11 
where the author says, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they, the ancients, be made perfect. They were still, they died in faith looking forward to something. And what they were looking forward to was that something that God had planned that was better, which is what we have experienced, so that now only together with us would they be made perfect. So what they were looking forward to is what we look back on. And yet, there's still more to come. There's still that promise of what is yet to come out there all the more as you see the day approaching, which we just studied last week in Hebrews chapter 10, that all the more as we see the day approaching, we're supposed to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We're supposed to come into the holy place. We are supposed to go into the holy place with confidence all the more as we see the day approaching. As we see the day of the final fulfillment of God's promise coming closer and closer and closer, we are supposed to all the more act in faith like the ancients did. We're supposed to all the more live by faith. So the author of Hebrews was writing to perseverance, or to persevere in the face of adversity. They were dealing with problems. But to us today, the author may write a different letter, might, might have a little bit of a different intent behind it. And I wonder if maybe his message might be for us to persevere in the face of abundance. Sure, we could argue that it's getting more difficult to be a Christian in our society and that it may not be too far off that we're going to face some difficult times. I don't know, maybe. But I know for sure what we are dealing with right now is abundance. And the majority of us in the church are dealing with abundance. I don't think our problem is as much adversity as it is abundance. At least from where I sit as a pastor, the thing that seems to trip us up most of the time isn't adversity, it's abundance. I mean, wouldn't you agree that right now we kind of have an overabundance of every possible thing you could imagine under the sun? Right, I mean, if you look at just life, we don't just have an abundance of goods, we have an abundance of opportunities. We have an abundance of connection. We have an abundance of at least fake connection, what we would call connection. We have, we have an abundance of information. We have an abundance of all kinds of things that we can't really put a price tag on, and yet this just overflowing abundance of all of this stuff all the time. I think maybe our sense of being overwhelmed generally stems from having too much, too many options. You've all heard of FOMO by now, if you haven't. FOMO is an acronym for the fear of missing out, right? 
And, uh, and a lot of times people will play on that to try to get you to do something you don't really want to do because you might miss out on something. There's another acronym, not just FOMO, now it's FOBO. Anyone heard FOBO? FOBO? FOBO is a fear of better options. And what they mean by a fear of better options is that we won't commit to something now because if we commit to something today for this coming weekend, between now and Friday, a better option might come up. And now we've already committed ourselves to something and we're going to have to miss out on this better, cooler thing. I think you would call that an abundance problem, right? Like I've got, I mean, I've got this really cool thing that might happen now, but, but uh, there might be a really cooler thing that's going to happen later, and I don't want to miss out on the cooler thing for the cool thing because I want the best option possible. That would be an abundance problem, right? And I think a lot of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, have felt overwhelmed with the abundance of options. For being honest with ourselves right now at this moment, there are a lot of things that are truly, legitimately only options to us that we have allowed to become a burden and a weight that we carry that we have to participate in these things. And I think it could be our abundance that is the thing that is going to be the greatest challenge we face that's going to keep us from really experiencing Christ and the faith and what is yet to come. Because the right now is so present, right? I mean, the right now is so here. Do you know what I mean? Like, like what we're experiencing right now is really easy to experience because it's now and it's tangible. And when the right now is really good, like it is right now for us, it's, it's really hard, I think, for us to start to get a picture of something that is, that is better than we could possibly imagine because the right now is so good. Dan Groover from the Gospel Coalition says, we are trying to dry up our profound sense of exile with the non-absorbent paper towels of the incomplete joys of this world. If that phrase, sense of exile, doesn't ring a bell, we mentioned it in our last series, Like Christ, and it's, uh, it's something that, that we are, we are exiles. First Peter 1.1, Peter addresses that to the exiles, to, to those who are not yet in their permanent home, their permanent dwelling. We are, we are exiled out until God calls us home or till he returns. And so we are exiles. We are not yet where our permanent dwelling is going to be. And there's this quote that we shared from J.R. Tolkien where he says, we all long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane is still soaked with a sense of exile. 
and we talked at that time about how when we go out into creation, and it's really easy to do here, when you go out into our creation where we live, you can go out and you can see the snow-covered mountains off in the distance to the east, and it doesn't take long to drive off to the west and see the, the vast immeasurable ocean and, and be in awe of God's creation. And when we do that, oftentimes when we go out and we're in creation and we're, we're out at dark and we're looking up into the expanse of the sky and we're seeing the millions of stars. And if you look off to the east over this one tree at our house, you can see a galaxy. And if you look up straight over your head, you can see the Milky Way, another galaxy that we're a part of. And you can see this galaxy in the, in the millions of stars. And, and you can look off and you can see that galaxy and the millions of stars. And it's only this little teeny tiny speck in the sky and yet it's just millions of stars over that way and, and millions of stars all over the place and when we look up and see these things we are filled with this sense of ah, it just seems like there's something more it just seems like like something is missing it just seems like there's something or someone behind it all and where is he who is he how do we know? We long for Eden. We long for the way God originally designed us. And it's not just in creation. We see it. We experience it in relationships. We experience it in, in good things in our society. We have a lot of really good things in our society. A lot of the things that are, we have in abundance are really good things. And yet we know that on a daily basis, when we go and partake of all of these really good things, it doesn't take us long to feel like something's missing. It doesn't take us long to go, oh, well, we just, you know, we gotta, just gotta go get my, my Starbucks. I gotta, I gotta go get my, my Dutch brothers, my crutch brothers, and I got to go and get these things, and, and it's going to make me feel better, and it makes you feel better for about 30 seconds, and then you're back into feeling like something is missing. That's longing for Eden. We all long for this better thing. We all long, every human being longs for this sense of nirvana, which is how our culture might think of it. We're looking, looking for nirvana, and, and our current society thinks that our society can fix all the problems of our society, and we're eventually going to get there where we just have everything like it's supposed to be, and that is a lie because it's not possible for humans to get there. It's just going to continue to get further and further, and maybe the closer you get, the further away it feels, the sense of exile. We are on the outside. This is not as good as it gets. It's good. It's not as good as it gets. And we're trying to dry up our profound sense of exile with the non-absorbent paper towels of the incomplete joys of this world. Should have had some paper towels up here. There's a problem. None of these things satisfy us for long. No matter how many things we accumulate or how full our schedule is, we still feel like something is missing. And if we're being honest, I would say a lot of times our our approach is to when something starts to feel like it's missing or we feel like something 
is empty inside of us, we go in pursuit of more things, more relationships, more events, more opportunities, more experiences, and we hope that maybe just that one more thing is going to feel or fill that wound and hole we feel deep inside us, and it never does. And then what happens is after that, we, we actually feel worse. Because we thought this thing was going to make us feel better. <laughs> and it didn't. And if that didn't make us feel better, then what hope do we have? Because no matter what we try, we still feel like something is missing. It doesn't keep us from trying. Right? It doesn't keep us from going and pursuing those things. It just perpetuates the problem. We still accumulate, pursue, and desire the abundance that's all around us. I will say, to an extent, there's nothing wrong with experiencing God's good gifts. I'm not arguing that we should just pull ourselves out of everything and live as hermits and all of that kind of thing, but we should do so with the right mindset, the right way of thinking, that these things aren't the thing that's going to satisfy us. We're grateful for them because God gives them to us for our pleasure, but all of them point us to him. Our confidence should not be in the abundance. It should be in the abundant God. And we definitely shouldn't use these things to try to numb the pain that we feel in our hearts while we're longing for home. Because I think this longing for home is, is something that, that God has in us for a reason, and it's supposed to draw us more towards the promise. And the more we experience this, this longing in our hearts, it's supposed to, I think, pull us towards the Father. And every time we go back to these things and try to put Band-Aids on a really large wound, we're just trying to numb the pain that we feel in our hearts when the only thing that can do that is the Father. So why all this talk about abundance? Well, ever since the Enlightenment happened, don't get me, I'm not down on the Enlightenment. I'm thankful for the Enlightenment. I'm thankful that we have the printing press and we have the ability to use logic and reason and all of these good things, the scientific method and all the things that have come out of the Enlightenment. Good stuff. But I think what has happened is that we've kind of defaulted, and I have, this is a really big struggle for me. I tend to default on concrete things. I tend to default and put my confidence and assurance in things that, that I can see and I can touch, things that I can know with assurance, like two plus two equals four. And, and if I do this, then that happens, if then kind of thinking. You know, we tend to, I think, put our confidence in concrete, tangible things of this life. 
And I think what tends to happen is that we put our confidence and then our assurance only in those things, and we start to limit what God can do, the abundant God. We, we don't really start to think about all of the possibilities that an infinite God can, can do, and we, we start to then, I think, try to scrub out and erase and write off some of the really great stories of, of the Bible all the way through the Old Testament. We start to say things like, well, I mean, I mean, did God really, like, part the waters for the Israelites to walk through? Or was it just kind of, you know, you know, like, he slowed the water down a little bit. You know, maybe he diverted a stream here for a little while and diverted it. And, you know, and we start to take absolute statements in Scripture and say, well, did God really do these things? And not realizing that all the time that we're kind of falling prey to the trick of our enemy back in the garden, did God really say, did God really do? And... One of the ones that might be the most controversial for us in our time would be creation, the belief that God actually created the world. And because the teaching of evolution in our culture and our society is so strong, because we have been indoctrinated with it from the time that we are little kids all the way until we're adults, when somebody says God created the world, it didn't happen by evolution, we start to react against that because of our logic and our enlightenment. And it's like, well, I mean, that's what the Bible says, but we all know how it really happened. I mean, did God really create the world in six days? Did that really happen that way? And I struggled with that thought for a while. And for a while, I would probably say that I subscribed or I ascribed to the ascribed to the gap theory where so well there's a gap between in the beginning where where you know could it could have taken you know millions of years for all the things to happen and then after the millions of years all the things happened and then God comes in and he starts to create the world but that's not really what the bible says and the reason i struggled with that statement for so long wasn't because it's not true It was my faith. Because my faith is, tends to be in tangible things. And a God who has the power to speak and create something is not very tangible. That's hard. So I think over the years our confidence has drifted into the tangible. But just because something is tangible doesn't make it real. There are lots of things that are tangible to us in our modern society that aren't real. We watched Toy Story 4 last night for Harry's birthday. I'm sitting there watching this like, man, the graphics are good. Watching this, admit this that house, the, the opening scene, you know, where they kind of come in over, over the road and there's the water and it, the water's glistening and there's all these reflections and then they come up to the house and zoom up to the house and the brick house and the outside. Like, this looks real. Something can 
look real, but it doesn't make it real. Just because something is intangible doesn't make it not real. One of the things I've said is that faith is when the unseen becomes as real as what is seen. I think we tried to downplay the the spiritual forces that are at work in our world for a long time. We didn't want to acknowledge them, but that doesn't make them fake. We may not ever see the spiritual forces that are at work in our world, but they're real. There's a whole unseen way of things that God wants us to have his understanding of. So why is abundance a problem? I think because our faith gets put in the tangible instead of in the invisible. We put our faith in the things we can touch and feel and experience and never really exercise our faith in the intangible of what is yet to come. Charles Kettering says, when I was research head of General Motors and wanted a problem solved, I'd place a table outside the meeting room with a sign, leave slide rules here. If I didn't do that, I'd find someone reaching for his slide rule, and then he'd be on his feet saying, boss, you can't do it. St. Augustine says, God does not expect us to submit our faith to him without reason. But the very limits of our reason make faith a necessity. Faith is to believe what we do not see, and the reward of faith is to see what we believe. We struggle because when we can see so much, when we have so much around us in our abundant society, I think the reason our faith may be so anemic and weak is because we've put so much of our confidence in the visible things that we can see and not even realizing that it's all of the unseen stuff that carries more weight. If we're not careful, we'll put all of our confidence in what can be seen but is temporary and not have any confidence for what is unseen, but eternal. In April of 1988, the evening news reported on a photographer who was a skydiver. He had jumped from a plane along with numerous other skydivers and filmed the group as they fell and opened their parachutes. On the film shown in the telecast, As the final skydiver opened his chute, the picture went berserk. The announcer reported that the cameraman had fallen to his death, having jumped out of the plane without his parachute. And it wasn't until he reached for the absent ripcord that he realized he was free-falling without a parachute. Until that point, the jump probably seemed exciting and fun, but tragically he had acted with thoughtless haste and deadly foolishness, 
Nothing could save him for his faith in a parachute that never got buckled on. Faith in anything but an all-sufficient God can be just as tragic to our spiritual lives. We can put our faith into something we can see and is tangible in our hands, but if we don't put our faith in something that we can't see, our eternity might be in jeopardy. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the author says. For before he was taken, Enoch was commended as one who pleased God. Before Enoch was taken up into this, up into heaven, he was commended as one who pleased God. 1 John 4.20 says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Enoch was commended as one who pleased God. Moses and Abraham were commended as ancients in the faith because of what they did and the way they expressed their faith in God in confidence in this life. I think it's time for us to really ask a serious question. Is where is our confidence, assurance, and identity? Where is our confidence? What are we really the most confident in? What are we really assured of? Are we just find all of our assurance in what we see? Do we find all of our identity in what this life has to offer us? Or is our assurance and confidence and faith in the one who designed us? Hebrews 12, 1b through 2a says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, We've talked about this before, but Jesus, when he went to the cross, he went to the cross full of joy, not because he was joyful about the painful experience of the cross, but because of what would happen as a result of the cross. For the joy set before him, he was able to see the result of the cross and let that guide his present. But he still had to go through the cross. He still had to endure the cross before the joy of our salvation can become a reality. And for us, there is a joy that's set before us. The day that is yet to come, when all will be made right, there'll be no more night, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more heartache, no more hurt, There is a day that is coming, that day is real, it is not fake, it is not something that that, that we hope is going to happen, it is an assured thing, and we we know it's assured based on all of the things that God has already done, and if he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen because he cannot lie. The only way there is with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Not on all the things around us that continually offer their distractions, but our eyes fixed 
on Christ. Our big idea is that faith is living fully assured in the hope. Fully assured in the hope. My assurance is in nothing else but the hope of Jesus Christ. Confidently living according to God's future promises in the present. Our identity statement is, I am living this life for the joy set before me. My perspective on this life is the joy that's set before me. It's not to try to get as much out of this life as I possibly can while I'm here. It's the joy set before me that determines how I live this life. When Hudson Taylor went to China, he made the voyage on a sailing vessel. He was a missionary, an early missionary. As it neared the channel between the southern Malay Peninsula and the island of Sumatra, the missionary heard an urgent knock on his stateroom door. He opened it, and, and there stood the captain of the ship. Mr. Taylor, he said, we have no wind. We are drifting toward an island where the people are heathen, and I fear they are cannibals. Taylor replied, what can I do? The captain said, I understand that you believe in God. I want you to pray for wind. All right, captain, I will, but you must set the sail. Why? That's ridiculous. There's not even the slightest breeze. Besides, the, the sailors will think I'm crazy. But finally, because of Taylor's insistence, he agreed. And 45 minutes later, he returned and found the missionary still on his knees. The captain said, you can stop praying now. We've got more wind than we know what to do with. That's faith. Confidence in what God is going to do, what is yet to come, his promise that he will not change, confidence in that and living now in the present according to that confidence. Faith is not something we muster up and we try to through mustering up faith and you know, see God do these amazing things. I think God just wants to do these things. He wants to give us indescribable gifts that we really can't explain or take credit for. He just wants us to be willing to take that first step that may seem crazy and weird and awkward and uncomfortable, like laying down in your backyard. Doing leaf angels. And then, once we've obeyed, listened to his voice, he pours himself out on us with true, eternal abundance. Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. 
that you are kind, that you are loving, that you never change, you never fail, you never disappoint, you never give up, you are never unloving, We thank you, Father, for the goodness that is in you. We thank you for the goodness that we saw on display in Christ as he lived and breathed and walked on this earth. I pray, Father, for any area of our lives where we have put our confidence in things of this life rather than in you, our maker and creator, that you would bring them up to the forefront of our minds in this moment. Throughout the rest of this day, Father, start bringing those things up and and drawing attention to, hey, uh, you might have too much confidence in this thing. Speak to us, Father. I pray that, that you wouldn't just speak to us when we're gathered together, but as you send us out of here in the power of the Spirit, that you would speak to us throughout this day. And as you speak, you would start to point out things that we have put our confidence in, that we are assured of, that really hold no hope. And Father, I pray that you would just start to draw our attention continually and constantly back towards your Son, towards the full assurance of hope that faith brings through the work of Jesus Christ, that that we can be secured in what he has already done for us. And we know that because he died, because he was resurrected, because he ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that the promises that are still out in our future yet to come are just as sure as we know of his crucifixion and resurrection. And Father, I pray any, any area of our life where we've put our confidence in anything but you, bring it up so that we can start to shed off those things and really enjoy in this life what it's like to live in full assurance of the hope. Father, help us to be people fully assured in the hope of Jesus Christ nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.